Tonight, the Reverend Al Sharpton is back and he's opening up about Loudmouth, the new film on his decades long fight for racial justice. How Sharpton exposed a racist side of New York many didn't want to believe existed. Plus, what's next for the modern civil rights movement as Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and by Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. The Reverend Al Sharpton has spent most of his life advocating for justice for Black families. It's a journey that started right here in New York City, specifically in Brownsville, Brooklyn, where he was born, but more significantly on the streets of Howard Beach, Harlem, Bensonhurst, Crown Heights, and everywhere in between. That's where in the 80s and 90s, Sharpton was at the center of a new New York City civil rights movement born out of decades of racial strife. It was a civil rights movement that played out on the local news and the tabloids, where Sharpton was a fixture. Now, a new documentary called Loudmouth brings new attention to that uniquely New York style of social justice movement and of Sharpton's role in shaping it. Here's a preview. Yeah, Mike, Chris did a walkthrough with the police. Uh, we get threats all the time. I'm, I'm not going to not do the rally. Come on, give me your name. Reverend Alfred Sharpton, chairman of National Youth Movement. We just buried a boy, and the only thing he did wrong was he was born on the wrong side of the track. In New York City in the 80s, what we wanted to say, people did not want to hear. So you had to be loud because you were not invited to address the public. This is the beginning of a civil rights movement in New York. It's all the media's fault. These things should be kept quiet. Now shop and go home. They will say that we are exasperating racial tensions, but the people know the truth. George. Floyd's story has been the story of black folks. We talk about calling for a big march. We won't put two, 300,000 people in Washington. If the question comes from the media about looting, he wanted to cast to you to set the tone. Couldn't breathe. I understand the anger. I've been fighting these issues for decades. Anytime you start shaking the root of this system, then you're going to have a discredit campaign. Senator Schumer, we have not had the legislative response to the litany of cases of policing all the way from Rodney King to now. 2020, we must deal 
with police brutality. We've got to turn these stations upside down. All of our lives you had to fight to make sure that you control the story. I want the folks at CBS to know if you can't tell the story right, don't tell it at all. You've got to be able to raise the theater level to where you don't lose control, but it is dramatic enough that you can't be ignored either. And joining me now to talk about the film and about his decades of civil rights activism in New York and beyond is the president and founder of the National Action Network, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Reverend Sharpton, thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. So one of the things I always ask, uh, especially when people have worked on a documentary that looks back on very specific times in history, why now? Why was now the time to retell some of these stories that were very traumatic for New Yorkers across the board? Well, uh, Kadar Massenburg, who is from Brooklyn and uh, was once president of Motown Records, he came to me and said he wanted to do a documentary. He went and got John Legend, the singer, and his company. And he said two things. If we do it, we want to go from the 80s in New York to where you became national more in the 21st century and showed that what you were fighting there then, you're fighting now and you're dealing with it at a different level. Secondly, that you have no editorial control. We're gonna do it and we're gonna put in what we want and you have no editorial control. So I thought about it, I said, well, I think the story needs to be told in part because for people to understand Donald Trump came from New York, who was about a mile and a half from Howard Beach when we were marching. Uh, he's about nine years older than me. But uh, you have to understand, he understood how to play to that bigoted crowd because he comes from that crowd. So, yeah, I want people to see how in New York, uh, people threw watermelons at us and called us the N-word for marching for justice for a young Black that was killed for being in the neighborhood or in Queens, in Brooklyn, with Bensonhurst. And a lot of people only think racism and racial confrontation was in the South. They did not look at New York. And a lot of young people uh, today that are 20 years old, they weren't thought of in the 80s when this happened. So I said, yeah, we'll do it and I'll risk uh, uh, you putting in things I may not like. And the last thing they said, one more thing, I said, what? They said, we're going to call it loud mouth. And now I said, wait a minute, let me think about this. And I thought about it. And I came back to them the next day. I said, I'll go with that. I said, because what you must understand is a lot of people that reach national civil rights uh, leader status came from the South, the generation ahead of me, John Lewis, Jesse Jackson, who I was mentored by. They were all from the South, Dr. King, where we modeled that. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, as you said. And in mm -hmm. New York, you couldn't just have a church rally and put out a flyer. You had to be loud. You had to do things that would get attention. We're competing with Broadway lights and Times Square and Radio City and Apollo Theater. So in New York, you had to have a different kind of style and strategy toward the same goal, raising the same issue. But I'm not in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm in New York. How do I get attention on this Greenville? Loud, 
it fits with the documentary if you watch the whole thing. Uh, but one of the things I do find interesting is that the film comes across not only as a depiction of you, but about how race and almost uh, tribalism works in New York City. But that doesn't seem to be one of the things that's at the forefront of the way New Yorkers define their city. So for you, what do you see as the uh, fission there between the reality that you experienced and a lot of uh, African-Americans, Black people living in New York experienced versus the story New Yorkers like to tell ourselves about the city? I think that uh, you have it exactly right, that two different views. And I think that's why you need people like uh, me and others that say that this is not the way it is and that we had to take the veil off of that. And the way to take the veil off is to let people behave themselves in a way that it can't be questioned. I remember when Howard Beach happened, 1986, and a young man called me and told me what happened and he was close to the family and I went and saw the family and they uh, told me that people was acting as though that they were in the uh, neighborhood, they being the three young Blacks, one was killed uh, for some nefarious reason, and not because of race was why he was killed. I said immediately, because I grew up in Operation Breadbass, I know how to make it clear with race. We'll go out there and have a motorcade, and then we'll come back with a march. And when we did, the neighborhood came out calling us the N-word, telling the media the N-word. Uh, I remember there's a clip in the documentary where one guy said, it's not about race. And the reporter said, they're on camera. Well, did the N-word get used? Oh, yeah, we said the N-word, but that's not race. Same thing in Bensonhurst. So I think that what I wanted to do was let them uh, expose this tribalism, this you don't belong in my neighborhood and we'll kill you. I could have made a thousand speeches. Nothing drove it home more than making them having to put on the news, this is what's going on in New York. And it also forced the criminal justice system to stop looking the other way and prosecute. Well, speaking of those prosecutions, and we do have a clip from the film that we wanna share, it's uh, you reacting to the convictions uh, in the Howard Beach case in regards to the death of Michael Griffith. So first, let's toss to that clip. Those that oppress us have the nerve to try and advise us on how we ought to try to get free from them. We are intelligent enough not to let you tell us what tactics that you are comfortable with to hold us enslaved. Under control, and you will never have us under control again. That was our beach. It felt like a victory, but you knew that you won a case, not change the system. I've been in the movement since 12, and I knew the difference between moments and movements that won. So it was a good 
momentary victory. But I knew there was no structural change in the criminal justice system. First of all, can you just expand on why something that might have been a huge relief or something for the family and perhaps the larger community still wasn't there, wasn't, you know, the change that you felt was needed? Because I I did not enter any of these cases as a lawyer uh, dealing with a case or as a journalist doing a story. I entered as a civil rights leader that wanted to see laws and uh, policies change. So I felt that this case showed the credibility of the cause. But if we didn't change the laws, if we didn't change how we would make hate crimes hate crime, then this would continue to happen unless you had somebody go out there and mobilize marches and raise attention and go to jail like we were doing. Why do we have to have to have all of that to get what other people get normally if there's a killing in their neighborhood? That's where you wanted the laws changed. So I think that people never understood that I saw the incident uh, as a means to an end, not the end. It's sort of like how Dr. King saw the Montgomery bus boycott as a means to get the Civil Rights Act of 64. He didn't end it with Rosa Parks on the bus becoming uh, uh, the charges dropped. And I think that what I tried to do was say these incidents should be magnified to raise a broader issue and lead to some some systemic change in society. Well, is that why, because later on in the, well, actually throughout the film, but definitely later on in the film, we see uh, you interacting a lot more with Senator Chuck Schumer and of course, various other politicians in New York uh, City and New York State and on the national level, et cetera. Did you intentionally turn your attention or perhaps include in your attention uh, the changing of the laws that were on the books in the first place? Absolutely. And and I think, again, coming out of that school of thought uh, with Operation Breadbasket, that's what we were supposed to do. The same Dr. King leading the march on Selma was one meeting with President Johnson and, and President Kennedy. So I would deal with Schumer and others. Uh, I was very, uh, had a lot of access to Barack Obama, but I still led the marches on Trayvon Martin at the same time and on Eric Garner in New York and on Michael Brown and Ferguson, uh, because that's the tradition I come out of. If you're not going to get permanent change, you're going to go from one incident to another. Movements are not episodal. There must be movements with goals at the end. So even with George Floyd, which uh, toward the end of the documentary has the big march that we had on Washington with over 200,000 people during the pandemic, we were calling for the George Floyd Justice Bill. Uh, and uh, and the John Lewis voting bill while we had access to Biden. So it's not that I just want to meet with big shots. I want to be able to make big change by talking to the big shots, which is why we've never left the streets. I might have gone from track suits to uh, tailored suits, but the mission is the same. I just grew older, so you dress different. Well, speaking of growing older and dressing differently, um, you also, I mean, the film also deals with a lot of the criticism that you got. And the biggest accusation that seemed to come your way was that you were just doing all of this for attention. Um, you address it in the film, but I would, if you could address it here again, well, the accusation that you were just seeking attention. First of all, it's true. We wanted attention. And I knew that uh, with the attention comes the heat. 
with the spotlight comes the heat too. They would come after you. They would try and discredit you. But the other thing is that if I was just doing it for fame, well, by the 90s, 2000, I had become uh, uh, well-known. Now I have a television show that I host and a radio show that I host. So why am I still marching if it was only for fame? Already known. Uh, I've been hosting a television show for 11 years. In those 11 years, I've done everything from Trayvon to George Floyd. So when does that start to get tired and people say, wait a minute, it's got to be more than that because he's still doing it. Just like they said, well, they were doing it for money. Well, where's the money? When when do I get the yacht? And when do I get uh, all of these other things? How long are we going to run these narratives? But if you read history, they did the same thing to Martin Luther King. I say that in the documentary. In the documentary. Martin Luther King was indicted for income tax invasion in uh, uh, 57 in Alabama. So it's the same playbook. Discredit, try to make you a crook, try to give you ulterior motives. If you can survive that, you can help build a movement. So that's one of the things that, and myself, not only as a Black woman, but also as a journalist, I found really interesting about the documentary is that you talk quite plainly about the way the news uh, ecosystem works, um, the way a lot of news media outlets work, specifically in a city like New York with so many tabloids and, you know, the eyes of the world, et cetera. Um, so I guess I have a two-part question. One is that what was it about it almost felt as if from the documentary that there was a uh, collective narrative that almost all of the different media outlets, newspapers, tabloids, uh, television stations, et cetera, agreed to sort of frame you in. First of all, do you think that that is a fair accusation? I think that it was a fair accusation. I don't think it was as conspiratorial. I'm not saying they met somewhere in a basement and decided we're going to pick them a certain way. I think that unlike the South, they were defending themselves. It was easy for liberal journalists in New York to talk about Southern bigots and the overalls and the bibs chewing tobacco. But now Sharpton is talking about us. We live in Queens. That's my cousin in Bensonhurst that comes to Thanksgiving dinner. So it was a collective denial that this could happen in New York. How dare you uh, uh, in any way pierce through that, that, that curtain that we've been able, that veil that we've been able to have of this great uh, uh, harmonious metropolis. So yeah, I became uh, depicted in certain ways, but I was able to continue to go because growing up in the movement, I understood that's what they did to us. And that I understood it was going to happen to me. The only challenge I had was to survive. Like uh, uh, when I was stabbed, leading a march in Bensonhurst, mm -hmm. and uh, the mayor told me some guys got on the train and beat up a white guy saying, this is for shopping. I laid in the hospital bed and called for nonviolence, said I did not want to see that. But you will still have those who say, oh, they caused disruption. Where? I mean, the, the violence that they try to accuse us of, there always is some other people doing, but I guess I was doing it by remote control. But clearly, there was a need for people in their self-denial in the media to try to act like we were extreme rather than there was a problem in New York because they were New Yorkers and didn't want to have to deal with the bigotry that they either tolerated or were involved in themselves, including the newsroom that were mostly white 
and the higher up you went in the newsrooms, whether it was broadcast or print, the higher up you went, it was like the Rocky Mountains. The higher you went, the wider it was. Do you feel as though, particularly, the New York media has learned any of those lessons? Have they uh, addressed any of those issues from your perspective? Because for a lot of particularly journalists of color, there's been a lot of discussion about the uh, weight of sometimes impartiality in the face of something that doesn't feel impartial at all? I think that uh, there's still a long way to go. I think some have learned, uh, but it's not a question of this person learning, that person learning. It's the institutional entrenched kind of narrative that they're going to project. So I think that that struggle still continues. We still do not have the right amount of black and brown journalists. We still don't have an, uh, the right amount at the top of the decision-making. And they are the ones that decide the stories. They decide the slants. I've read stories on myself where the headline said one thing, and you read the story, the story doesn't even say that. But some guy in charge of the headline gives a whole provocative uh, negative image, and you read it and say, but this story doesn't say that. We still have not gotten to where we have balance that represents the demographics of the city. You know, one of the things you mentioned uh, that the film does cover uh, the instance when you were stabbed. And I think sometimes, especially for uh, leaders of movements, et cetera, they get blown up into caricatures and almost uh, superhuman. And I'm wondering how human of a moment did you have as you were sitting there bleeding from your chest waiting for an ambulance? Very human. Uh, I mean, you're looking at your own blood, tasting your own blood. You don't know if the guy punctured uh, uh, a vital organ. You, you don't know anything. And uh, I think that, you know, the drama and all of that is one thing. When I'm there with young kids, neither one of them 10 years old, both my daughters, and you're sitting there saying, if this is going to be fatal, what's going to happen to my kids and all of that, it is at that moment you have to really face, do you really think this is worth it? And in that day that they were taking x-rays and, and had to do surgery to deal with some things in my chest, that I still have the surgical scar, that's when I knew that I really, really, really was committed to this because I said, if I survive this, I'm going to keep marching. And I did three days later. Um, I, and, and to all of those that call me an opportunist, and some uh, maybe still do, how much can somebody pay you for taking a knife in your chest? Or the times that I went to jail, three and four, I went to jail 90 days around the acres and several other times, 45 days. They might pay you to do that. So at some point, you have to know yourself what you believe because you've been tested. And the more you know yourself what you believe, what others want to put out there matters less and less. Well, given the fact that you are now in American lexicon, Reverend Al, uh, but you also make it very clear that the work still needs to be done. So I wonder, do who do you see perhaps as picking up the mantle and carrying forth the work that needs to be done? Is there anyone, I guess, on deck for lack of a better description? There's a, there's a deck. Uh, we have, you know, 126 chapters in name. And there are several chapter leaders, male and female, that I think has a lot of potential. And uh, uh, I've also met some uh, that are not in National Action Network that have a lot of potential.
but you will not know until you give them that opportunity. And I have said uh, that uh, I want to lead NAN into at least 2024 and uh, making sure we get out uh, past this next Trump attempt and all, and that I want to pass that on. I'll continue my media, radio, and TV, and I'll still be on the field. But I wanted to pass that on, like I was trained by Reverend Jones and Reverend Jackson and others. I think that people don't realize, I was talking to Reverend Jackson about that one day. Reverend Jackson and John Lewis, who was like a generation ahead of me, about 15 years older than me, they were the first generation of civil rights leaders that had to learn how to get older. You know, Dr. King, Malcolm X, Meg Gavis, all of them were killed before their 40th birthday. So. Jesse said to me, Al, I had to learn how to live past 45 because my model got killed at 40. I don't know what Dr. King would have done uh, had he lived up, uh, beyond 39 years old. I'm just the second generation of, of, of civil rights leaders nationally that has to deal with how do you get older and when do you let it go? And we're still learning. And I intend to be part of the right side of learning that. A sense of I was raised by the first generation that had to wrestle. Well, Reverend Al, we've got about a minute left, but my final question to you: the new answer to the question "Where's Brooklyn at?" is now leading the House, uh, the Democratic Caucus, I should say, in the House of Representatives. So, what advice would you have for uh, the good congressman who is about to step into the leadership role? I've known Hakeem. 20 years or more, he's been a member of National Action Network. We talk all the time. Be authentic, be real. He's always been the guy that wanted to reach out and try to get a bipartisan and collective moves on things. But don't lose your grounding because the ground you stand on is stronger than the heights you will rise to. We will always expect you to be our king. And I have faith we always will. Of, of course, of course. Um, any final thoughts, though, on the takeaway you would want people to have from watching Loudmouth? I want them to know that Northern racism may have been more manicured, but it was just as vicious. And I want them to know that we must continue to fight, uh, not Southern bias, but national bias, and institutionally change things so that our grandkids and their children will say, you know, not only was there a time in Selma and Montgomery this happened, there was a time in Brooklyn, New York this happened, and laws changed. And some of those that marched became mayor and became even the head of the Democratic Caucus of the U.S. Congress. All right, well, we're going to leave it on that note, but uh, Reverend Al, you are a legend uh, in your own time, definitely a legend of New York, and the film is Loudmouth, a documentary. So please go get a chance to see it. And thank you so much for joining us on Metro Focus. Thank you, glad to be with you. Absolutely.